I'm Jake Corley. And I'm Mark LaCour. You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by Red Wing. This is the show for busy oil professionals who want to quickly keep their fingers on the pulse of the industry. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Oil & Gas This Week. This is episode 103. What's going on, Mark? Uh, busy, busy week. Um, this could be a busy year for all of us, but uh, everything's good. Um, you know, the, the oil and gas industry is doing well. You know, business is good. Uh, the weather's nice. So, all good stuff. We're going to be busy. We got a lot of things on the road here coming up. Man, we got a ton of stuff coming up on the road. So, um, we got, um, um, let's see, process safety is actually this week. Uh, we got OTC in May. You and I have, what, three different universities that are in the pipeline for us to go speak to? Yeah, three um, that are solidified. Also going to be at Geo Convention May 15th and 19th, which, by the way, Jake, if any of my listeners out there work for a service company and they're looking to, to generate some really high-quality leads, they need to get on a hold of uh, Dustin at Geo Convention and grab a booth space. He's a uh, standard 10 by 10 space, which is normally 1800 bucks to 1600 bucks. Jake and I are actually going to be doing the, um, the keynote pr- <laughs> presentation during lunch. It was kind of scary over there. Um, and so it's just a great time as these prices uh, creep up for you to get in front of a bunch of oil and gas clients. So uh, hit up Dustin, Jake, I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, and then if you would like Jake or I to come to your school, your university, your car club, you know, your uh, trade association, whatever, reach out to us. We'd be happy to share the details. Um, hey, Jake, did you get a chance to watch that video I dropped in under uh, powerpassimpossible.org? No, I did not yet. Yeah, so put a link in the show notes. So, you know, I typically... Um, you know, kind of make fun of API, even though um, I'm on the board here in Houston. Um, they don't always do a really good job of explaining the benefits of the oil and gas industry to the common people. And Jake, they did, they did an awesome video. They tie oil and gas into all the stuff that people don't think it ties into. Things like cars, electric cars, things like the space race, things like medicine. Um, so it's a very short, I think it's 35 seconds, but it's just a, it's a great watch uh, if you want to see the benefits of the oil and gas industry to, to humanity. Is that the same one that was at the uh, the Super Bowl Super Bowl ad? It's the exact same one, yeah. So just like every other Friday, this is our first Friday Q&A for the month of March. So we got a whole bunch of questions. Uh, thank you to everybody who wrote in. We got some really good ones. Uh, so let's go ahead and dive into that. Uh, first question is from Katarina Kostin. She's a former roughneck from Saxon Energy. She writes, I love listening to the podcast. I live in Australia where I worked in drilling for four years. Uh, and lastly, worked as a roughneck for Saxon before I quit my job. Uh, long story short, she had a job lined up with Slumber's Day and then the downturn. And then the job kind of just disappeared. Um, she writes, I'm des- devastated because the last two weeks I couldn't download your episodes from iTunes. They do show up in the list of subscribed podcasts, but they don't download automatically. Neither when I try to download them individually. Um, I don't know if others are having the same issue as I cannot listen in on you and your readers comments, please help me. So Mark and I actually had the same problem. Was it two weeks ago? Yeah, we've had it with all of our podcasts, and and we can't figure out what it is. We we think it's an iTunes issue, depending on what country you live in. Um, but the, the workaround, the fix is, has seemed to work for everybody, regardless of of, of what uh, you're listening to the device on, and that is to uninstall the or quit subscribing to the podcast, shut down the podcast app reboot your mobile device and then once it's booted back up reopen the podcast app and then resubscribe to the podcast and that seems to have fixed it 100 percent of the cases yeah that worked for me as well and then the second part to her question is she said that she can't find the oil and gas this week group on linkedin and that's because 
there isn't an oil and gas this week group on LinkedIn. It's the Oil and Gas Global Network Group. Um, so we'll put a link in the show notes for that. I'll take you directly to it. You can join and hop in on the conversation. And then there's also the OGGN uh, Facebook group as well. So feel free to uh, jump in on that as well. Uh, and then the third part to her question is she said, I would like to subscribe to the Oil and Gas Young Professionals Group, but I find it very U.S. market focused which makes sense. I mean, it, it is a Houston chapter. Um, she says, I live in Australia. I'm interested in the Arab Central Asian market. Do you know of any other groups, networks, which focus more on those regions? Thanks. Yeah. And so uh, actually, I do know the answer. To that. So SPE, the Society of Petroleum Engineers, has a group that focuses exclusively on those regions of the world. So uh, Katrina, reach out to SPE. You have to do a quick Google search um, and find them, or maybe even uh, Jake will do it for you and stick a link in there. But that's the place to go. And then once you're plugged in with that group, um, you can um, uh, ask the members there, you know, about you know Asia Pacific and the Arab markets because they'll know other groups that you can join. So you can kind of just spider on out from there. Yeah, I think SPE has a chapter in almost every major oil and gas producing city. Yeah, and API will also have um, chapters out there as well. The thing about API is it's upstream centric only. Um, so it's uh, that might be another place to go, but I would start with SPE. Yep. Next question from Ben Steely. Uh, he's over at, I think it's Delic US Holdings. Uh, he works in special projects. He writes, where can I find some comprehensive maps covering pipelines across the country for refined products? I would even be willing to purchase physical paper maps if that is the answer. Yeah, it probably is somebody still selling physical maps in this industry. Um, so, Ben, actually, I got a couple answers for you. Um, it's a national pipeline mapping systems. Um, it's a part of the U.S. Gov, and they have all the um, the the uh, pipelines in the United States listed, and they have a public viewer, and you can search by you know region or type of pipeline or whatever. Um, the other thing is um, uh, Pipeline 101, so uh, pipeline101.org, and they have a section called Where a Pipeline's Located, and they show once again, all the pipelines uh, in, for everything, including refined fuels here in the U.S. Um, now, he says across the country. So that should cover it. I don't know of any single one place where you can find uh, the world, active world map of pipelines. But he did say just looking for the U.S. So there's two places to go. Um, I don't think you have to spend any money, Ben. Um, you may have to do a little bit of work on, on tightening down your search criteria to find just refined products. But um, there's those two places, and, and there's probably a dozen more out there. But that's that's the two places I would start. And it's uh, I'll repeat it again because Jake's going to have to find it to put it in the show notes. But it's National Pipeline Mapping System. And then it's um, also um, uh, Pipeline 101. And then you go to their section where, where are pipelines located. Yeah, for the most part, I think you would have to definitely narrow down because if you think about it, if you were like in a zoomed out view of the entire U.S. pipeline infrastructure, it's just going to be a whole just mess of color. It's, a, it's everywhere. They're yeah. everywhere. All right. Next up, question from uh, Chip Warren. He's an investor. He said he recently watched Deep uh, Deepwater Horizon. Uh, I would like to know that once the drilling is completed, how does oil get from the wellhead to the ship? Yeah, so the Deepwater Horizon movie was about them actually capping a well which they were using a drilling rig for doing that. Um, so so there's several ways, Chip, how the oil gets from the bottom of the ocean floor to the surface. A very common one, especially in like the shelf situations like the shallow water in Gulf of Mexico, is once they're finished drilling and they go in production, they'll then, they'll then place and build a production rig, a production platform. So um, it looks sort of the same, except you have a lot less people on it, sometimes no people on it, and you don't have the derrick for the drilling because they're not drilling, they're just going to production. Now, the cool thing is in the last 
say 10 or 15 years, a lot of these production platforms also process what's coming up, which is really cool. So they separate the oil from the gas, they may clean up the gas, they may clean up the oil, and they do that stuff on the, on the, on the surface, which is just, it's just really cool that the technology is there. Another way it can happen, especially when it's deeper water, is you can have something called umbilicals. And these are large, huge, flexible pipes that connect from the wellhead up to the surface. And then they'll bring usually a special type of boat that actually connects to the umbilicals and offloads that oil. And then finally, believe it or not, especially in uh, the North Sea and in the Gulf of Mexico, there's hundreds and hundreds of miles of subsea pipelines that bring that uh, that gather that oil, uh, sometimes it processes it on the ocean floor and it brings it a lot of times to the to land without ever a vessel being involved. In fact, if you get a chance, you might want to check out the Chevron Jack St. Malo project and watch them build that subsea pipeline in the Gulf of Mexico. I mean, it is like just unbelievable feat of engineering that they pulled it off and it's so massive. Um, and then if I'm not mistaken, I think Chevron uses that pipeline in the Gulf of Mexico, not just for their own wells, but they, they offer access to it to even some of their competitors to move their product on land. Um, so there's Chevron, you know, making money by building the infrastructure, the subsea pipeline to get that oil from the ocean floor up to the surface. Uh, but, but, but really good question, um, Chip. And it's um, like we talk, tell all our investors, we are not investors. So don't take our information and use it to as, as leverage to invest. But if you do and you make money, you owe us something. So the next question is uh, from our buddy, Nick Gunn. Uh, he writes, hey, Mark and Jake, I hope all is well. I've collected a few questions over the past month. Um, so starting off, all right, Mark, we're going to tackle these one at a time. So here we go. What's your understanding of the state of, uh, what is that, I guess, the European Union and U.S. sanctions on Russia? It appears that Trump wants to ease or lift sanctions eventually, but is proceeding very cautiously. Several EU countries seem to want to ease sanctions as well. The EU has another layer of issues with several inter interesting elections in its large member states and it's uncertain future generally. So what do you think is likely to happen with these Western sanctions in the near term? Yeah, so I, I've, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I think we're going to lift the sanctions both here and in Europe on Russia. Um, and, and our sanctions here, Jake, are different than what the EU has, has done. So we've, we've We've really hammered the business of Russia, so we've put sanctions on their on the financial services as far as uh, ability for U.S. companies to engage in transactions over there, and then they we've also um, you know set sanctions where um, we target specifically their energy sector, which is a large provider of their revenue. Um, <clears throat> we also target um, any type of defense uh, materials or goods. And then um, we also targeted their exporting ability from the energy sector. So we really hit their business really hard. Um, the European went about a little bit differently. Um, they went after actual individuals, so key people in the government. Um, and they've actually enforced travel bans for those people. Um, they've also limited their access to Russia companies to capital. Um, they've placed restrictions on the use of uh, dual-use goods and technology. So a good thing is something like LIDAR, which you may be able to use for commercial construction, which would be okay, but if you use it for, uh, for work in oil and gas, it's not okay. And then there's a whole list of technologies that the EU have banned from being imported in, in, into Russia. And then they've also placed bans on anything that has to do with the oil and gas industry. So I, I, I think they'll lift them both here and, and in Europe. Um, you know, uh, Russia's um, invasion of Croatia was what set all this stuff off. And I think if I remember right, speaking of Australia earlier, I think Australia was one of the first countries to actually um, step in and, and issue sanctions for Russia for that. Um, it, it, I, I'm convinced that our present administration is going to uh, push that slowly but surely. Um, there's a bunch of stuff going on in the news right now, which I think is just chatter about uh, 
the relationship between our current administration and the Russian government before the election was made. I think once that's out the door, we'll ease up on these sanctions. Um, and, and I think that'll probably happen the very, I think the very end of 2017 or the, maybe the first quarter of 2018. And his second question, are there any countries in the world other than the U.S. where individual property owners actually own their mineral rights where? So I did some research on this, and I think we're pretty much the only country in the world. Yeah, we are. However, uh, in the U.K. specifically, the government's looking at changing that so that the landowners actually get uh, income from their mineral rights to help speed up the acceptance from the landowners of new drilling technologies like uh, fracking. So I, I think the UK is probably um, is going to look at doing it probably in a test run to begin and see if it actually makes a difference. And then if it does, it might roll out nationwide. But as far as I know, Jake, I agree with you. We're the only country where individuals own the mineral rights or can own the mineral rights. We'll see if the queen wants to give up the ownership. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Third question. Here's an oil and gas 101 question. Can you talk a bit about the process of acquiring licenses to look for and extract oil and gas internationally? Who are the people within a company who deal with this side of work, bid, negotiate, interface with foreign governments besides lawyers? Is it mostly the big companies that get involved in these deals? So this this question depends on a lot of things to answer this. So in the past, a lot of this went on internationally where somebody like Exxon or Chevron or Anadarko would go to another country, negotiate with the government and, and basically buy mineral rights just like they do here. Now, because so much of the of the world, the minerals have been seized by the government and the national oil companies, the NOCs control it, it becomes a business negotiation where the NOC is trying to leverage the major or the super major or maybe even another NOC from another country to help its country and its people. And so you have uh, specialists that do this exact type work, and they tend to be specialists by country. So I guarantee that Shell has people that are experts at uh, doing this sort of stuff in Nigeria and separate people who are experts at doing this in Brazil and separate people who are experts at doing it here in the U.S. and so on and so on. Um, and the lawyers do get involved, but not as much as you think. The lawyers are there to understand the litigation and the legalese that's needed in each country. Um, but this is a business negotiation. So lawyers are, are used as a tool, and they come in the end to bless the contracts, but it's the business of the oil and gas companies that do this. And yes, it's the big companies out there. Um, there's some smaller companies that do this, especially if it's uh, close to them geographically. But by and by, it's all the large companies that even get involved in these type of deals. There's actually a, a good documentary. It was a documentary put on by BBC called Big Men. It was released in, I think, like 2013. And it was about Cosmos Energy. But it was back when they were actually small. Now they're worth like $2.5 billion. But it, it shows the entire process of them having to actually negotiate with, I think they were drilling off the coast of uh, Nigeria or something like that. Um, so that's a cool, cool documentary you can check out. I think it was on Netflix last time I checked. Yeah. So, Jake, if you find a link, throw it in the show notes. That might be useful to our audience. Yeah, we'll put that in there as well. Uh, fourth question, what are your favorite sources of information for keeping up to speed on news and developments in the oil and gas industry? Hey, Nick, oil and gas this week podcast. (laughs) (laughs) That's an easy one. (laughs) And besides this podcast, Nick, if uh, you go to uh, my website, uh, modal point, there's a page called learn the oil and gas industry. And on that page is a bunch of good information, including a whole bunch of magazines like, um, upstream technology, uh, pipelines, um, you know, Downstream refining is a bunch of really good um, magazines that you can get for free if you subscribe for them off my website. So we've asked, been asked this question so much professionally that it just became easier for me to build a page and point people toward that page. So uh, Jake, throw it in the show notes. It's the Learn the Oil and Gas Industry page on Modal Point. All right. And fifth question, 
Are you aware of any companies making interesting advancements in extended reach drilling? Is it cost prohibitive these days to use extended reach drilling to access offshore resources from land-based rigs? I know Exxon did some pretty long land-based drilling to offshore resources on the Sakhalin 1 project. Has anyone done this kind of thing on the west coast of the U.S.? So the answer to that is yes, and that's an extended reach drilling is, is ERD. It's, it's basically directional drilling of extremely long uh, wells. And, and what they're, the desire, what they're trying to do is reach a larger area from one location, right? Um, and are, are to be able to keep or develop a bigger conventional well in a con, um, traditional um, reservoir. So the first time that this that I know this this was used was by Mobile before Exxon bought them in the 1980s, um, and there's been a bunch of work on this. The problem with it at some point, because when you're when you're drilling, basic physics are still involved. You still have friction on the pipe. You still have friction on the on the uh, drill bit, and eventually. You have so much friction on that extended stream that it eventually becomes more expensive than actually moving the, the drill site itself. So until somebody figures out a way to get around the simple physics of that, um, this is only going to be applicable in, in certain situations where it just makes sense. Um, now, in the U.S., it tends to be used in places where from a either an environmental or sometimes even from a legal you know, think about um, if there's a wetlands um, habitat that you would have to cross through and build a bridge and have to mitigate that wetlands. Well, that's a big cost. Maybe you could, instead of doing that, you just drill from extended range from a different area. So it's done. There's people working on some new technologies around this. But at the same time, there's other technologies such as autonomous drilling that I think actually will reach ahead of this. So um, it, it, it's done. It's still around. It's, it's still a conventional well technique that that's being used. Um, I don't see it taken off. I really don't. I, I think it was I think it's probably hit its maturity. Um, I think there's other drilling technologies out there. They'll, they'll just blow past this as we go forward in time. And next question, Colin Beasley. He won our Red Wing bag last week and he wrote, will someone email me? <laughs> he literally, Jake, I don't know how, Colin, I don't know how you did this. My, my cell phone went off within a few seconds of each other. At first it was a, a, an email from the actual website and then it was actually linked him, him reaching out to me asking the same question. So Colin, your bag's in the way, I promise. So if any of our listeners out there win the bag, the way the process works is Red Wing reaches out to you separately than Jake and I. They collect your information and they put your bag in the mail and then about a week later you get it. So Colin, if, uh, if, if they haven't reached out to you yet, they will reach out to you soon. But I just thought it was funny that he hit me twice that quickly because he's so excited he won won the bag <laughs> so then the uh next one is an anonymous person we're not sure who it is um and they write in jake i heard you talking about the rice alliance otc startup event i work for a large oil and gas company and several of my friends and i want to start up a business addressing a very particular problem in production that we see is fixable with the right technology. Uh, we're going to bootstrap this ourselves, but I want to know if looking for investor money makes more business sense. Any direction that you can provide would be greatly appreciated. By the way, the show has increased in awesomeness since you came on board. Keep it up. <laughs> Love it. S stroking my ego there a little bit. Um, so I guess to answer that, since you said the problem you're addressing is fixable with the right technology, I'm going to assume that it's probably a product and not a service, um, but I'm still unsure whether it's a physical product or a software product. Um, but either way, the best way to approach investors is once you have some kind of traction already. So either if it's a software product, if you at least have users to show some kind of traction, um, that'll actually get you money these days. It's obviously better to have some kind of revenue coming in. Um, money really talks. Um, so for WellHub, for example, we're developing our minimal viable product, uh, which should be ready by like summer 
Um, and I can't just go out and say, yeah, you know, I've, I've had success in this space before and just invest in me and we'll have a product done soon. Cause from an investor standpoint, they're not just going to write you. I mean, would you write somebody a large check, say for a million dollars to somebody who doesn't have a product, who doesn't have traction and nothing's really proven or trending to go in the right direction, you know? So, um, keep bootstrapping, put together a product or either if it's a like I said, a software system, or if it's actual something that's physical that you're putting down hole or whatever it may be, um, get some traction, get some sales first. And then the investor conversations will most likely find you before you find them. Yeah. And, and so Jake, this is Jake's world, but just from somebody that has started up a small business in the oil and gas industry and has stood it up and has ran it, um, you know, I've, I've had several times people want to invest money in my business and I've never taken the money because I didn't have to. Um, did that limit my growth? Yes. Did that mean that I kept ownership of my company 100%? Yes. One of the things a lot of people don't realize is that when companies invest in you, they take ownership. Um, that's what they're investing in. And their goal, typically, Jake, and correct me if I'm wrong, is to help you grow to a certain size and then sell you, then exit the business. And if that's what you want as well, then that's probably a great strategy. But if you want to hang on to the business and run it as your, your own, you know, be really careful about grabbing investor money because those two things usually don't go along. One of the things a lot of people don't think of is once your, your business is off the ground and it's making money and you can actually prove them that you're profitable and you're looking to grow and you need capital to grow, man, look at friends and family. You know, if you can get, you know, 10 people to give you a thousand dollars well, there's $10,000 and of course they'll get a return on their investment, but you pay them back with interest, not in equity. So you keep control over, over, over your company. Um, I, I see a lot of, of, of people, especially young people go all out trying to get in front of investors and not realizing they probably can get at least halfway there if they just run a business and, and you know save your pennies and then use that to fund growth in your business. And it may take you longer, yes, um, but then you own it 100%. It's yours. You can do what you want to with it. Yeah, exactly. If you, if you can get by with owning a majority stake in your company or owning all of it, really, it's always going to be better in the long run. Because like Mark said, if you are getting with an investor, their entire end game is to make money. So you're exiting either via acquisition or IPO, one or the other. Um, and acquisitions are a lot more likely than IPOs, but you have to be something that's going to be attractive to bigger guys. Say like a GE oil and gas has a good track record for you know, acquiring startups in the space or maybe a Halliburton or a Schlumberger or something like that. Yeah, it's um, the other thing, if you're struggling with growth, a lot of times that is cost of hiring the right talent, right? You need an app dev guy or you need an engineer or whatever. There's also people out there in the workforce that have the skills that you need to grow that for a piece of your business will take a lower salary. Um, and just you just give them some ownership, give them some stock, and then they are they're kind of like co-owners, or, or, or at least they have skin in the game, right? Um, you still control the company because you have the majority stake, but now you have people that you can bring on board at a much lower salary point, and they do that in the hopes that as the company grows, they will benefit from it financially. So there's there's you know there, there's a bunch of ways to come up with capital. Um, and, and also just remember, you may not always need capital. I mean, if you have a revenue stream, if you're profitable, like I said, it just may take you longer to grow, but if you can do it yourself, you then own it from, from cradle to grave. One of the things that a lot of people forget about too, is that if you have revenue coming in, that's the big, if, um, say you're bringing in, I don't know, hundred thousand dollars a month or whatever. Uh, we'll use that as an example. You can go get a small business loan, but you can't do that if you don't have revenue because then you can't pay the note. Okay. So people forget about that. So then you're just, you're just 
you're taking out debt and you're not owing anything to any investors. You're just paying back the bank. So that's another really good viable option for, for a lot of companies that most people aren't really focusing on these days. Yeah, and Jake, I, I don't know what your two cents on this is, but one of the things I see a problem with a lot of startups in oil and gas is they start thinking too early out the gate about how they're going to exit versus how to build a successful business. And you're not going to exit <laughs> unless you have a successful business. You know, you yeah. need to have clients, you need to have revenue streams, you need to have orders on the books. You know, you need to have that system that you know accounts receivable, accounts payable, HR manuals, all this sort of stuff. You need to run a company. Once that's in place and the machine's running, then you can look at what you want to do in the future. At that talk we did at uh, Station Houston a while back, one of the things that kind of kept coming up is a lot of people are, they want to start a company and then they want their first customer to be like Chevron or Exxon or something like that. And it's... It's not realistic. It's Yeah, it's not realistic for one. And two, it's almost more headache than it's worth at that stage for your company. So focus on mid to large size, even maybe smaller producers. If you're working in upstream, um, there's really not any small companies in downstream or midstream for the most part. Um, but I can but speak you, to that. You could also focus on the companies that service the big companies, right? They're yeah. smaller, right? Mm -hmm. It's... um. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, Jake, and it's 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 interesting because I have my clients from Modal Point do this often. In fact, I had it happen just last week, um, and the company said, "I want to sell to Exxon," and I had to look the CEO and I and go, "The lowest margin deal you will ever make in your entire life will yeah. be to Exxon. You don't want to sell them. They will They're, squeeze you. They because they've been doing it longer than anybody else, and the terms are their terms, not your terms. And if you don't do their terms, they won't work with you." And so um, you're much better off finding the smaller, more nimble companies. And a lot of the smaller companies will actually take a chance. You know, it's like, okay, I, I get the, where this thing can help me. I get the problem that it solves. I know I have to change something. I'll try it. The big, large companies won't take a chance. Until it's rock-solid lockdown, they're not going to engage with you because the risk of them making a mistake is just too big. Yeah. And if you and if you take a deal with, say, like an Exxon, they will squeeze you on, say, if you had a monthly fee for whatever you're doing, they'll squeeze you on that to the point where you're not making money on it. And then the scope of the project could be so large that it could actually put your company under. And we've yeah. seen that multiple times in the industry. I've seen it a whole bunch of times. And, and the thing about um, the, the, the large super majors, especially, um, is that they have been they have turned buying into a science over 100 years ago, right? Think about the amount of cash they spend. Imagine having to build just a single production platform. I mean, billions of dollars that can be. And imagine doing that 700 times around the world. Their supply chain and procurement people are the best on the planet um, because they've negotiated so many big, large deals. So once again, the, the lowest margin deal you probably would ever do as a company will be with Exxon. Um, and, and if you're listening from Exxon, I love you to death. Um, I've done business with you for years, um, but you're a pain in the butt to do business with. <laughs> I still love you to death, <laughs> but you, you, you're a little bit of a pain. Great if anybody company, else wants to talk about uh, startups or investing in anything, just reach out to me or Mark. Send us an email. Reach no, out no, on reach out to Jake. That's Jake's <laughs> world, not mine. And I can talk about it all day. So uh, on to the next one. Last question is from Amy Williams. She's a project manager over at RDS. She writes, I love the show and it's listen a Royal, to it. Royal Dutch Shell. Oh, most people so would I'm just say Shell. She's on the... She's not an American. Okay. She's, she's on the UK side or she's in The Hague or something. That's Royal Dutch Shell. She says, as a project manager, I'm curious how the new technologies that you keep talking about will affect managing these large CapEx and intensive oil and gas projects around the world. Also, I'm looking forward to the new oil and gas industry leaders show. Please tell Paige you go girl. <laughs> Paige got a shout out in our show from somebody <laughs> from the UK. That's awesome. Thanks, Amy. We're looking forward to it as well. Um, this is a great, great, great question. 
And the reason is a great question. It's something that nobody's thinking of yet. It's cool that she's thinking of this already because it's her profession. So I'm going to make some guesses here, Amy. I don't have a crystal ball. Um, so right now, um, you're, you're probably doing a lot of work in Primavera. That's your project management tool. And you use Primavera to build your work breakdown structures for your projects, to look at your deliverables, your timelines, your budgets, um, you know, the um, critical path, all that sort of stuff. And you get good at it because you've done it for so long. One of the things that's going to change is as big data analytics works its way into projects, it's going to look at all the other projects that you've done and everybody else has done in Shell, and it's going to start comparing metrics. And so when you go to enter a number in Primavera, it may go, hey, Amy, no, I don't think that 3.5 is a good number. Based upon big data analytics of every project Shell's ever done, instead of 3.5, that should be 13. And so what it's going to do is help you become a better project manager, which means you're going to take projects that were marginally, right, for as far as a go, no-go decision, they may have not went with it, and now they know they're going to make money. But Amy, it's also do something else. It also means that a more junior project manager that doesn't have your experience can do the job as good as you. Because now the machine is helping make sure those decisions are made the right way. So as a whole, it's going to lower the cost of doing big CapEx projects. It's also going to make them more efficient, which is what this industry loves. And then that's going to uh, play its way into making marginal fields more profitable, which they'll go in production, which just increases the number of hydrocarbons this world has, which goes right back to what I've been saying forever, that we're in this long-term hydrocarbon abundant world. The other thing that's going to do that nobody's thinking about is right now, if you know, a oil company wants to go do some work in some rural area of Colorado, they have town hall meetings. They try to get a finger, a feel for the pulse of the population to see if they're pro or against it. And if they're against it, why? Well, by using social media and using other technologies, machine learning in combination with social media, chat bots, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, you're also now going to be able to figure out what the people in these areas, and not just in the U.S., but all around the world, how do they take, what do they feel about this project? If they have concerns, what are those concerns? How would you address those concerns? And so I think that a lot of this new technology, the way it's going to interface with social media, is eventually going to remove a lot of the just um, untruths and the downright lies about this industry that, that try to hurt this industry. And I think all the stuff that's in the public attention um, that's not true, such as we don't care about the planet we're destroying the planet we're causing climate change it's a, a dirty industry um, it's all about profit and none of that stuff's true and right now though most of the population thinks there's some truth that and i think these new technologies are going to remove that so the 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 world as a whole knows the benefits of the oil and gas industry. So um, I, I really think it's going to hammer, it's going to affect projects, these big cap projects in a way that nobody's thought of yet. And quite honestly, I mean, you beat me to the punch. I haven't thought about it uh, until you asked the question about how technology is going to affect these projects. And it's probably going to affect them in ways that, that none of us have thought of yet, but I guarantee it's all going to be good stuff. So awesome, awesome question. Thinking way far ahead. I, I just think that's cool. I think the next generation of like really, really viable project managers in oil and gas are also going to have some kind of data science certification. Yeah, they're going to have to. And there's, and there's going to be a whole bunch of moving parts and pieces to that. Um, you know, as you're able to crunch your company's data on projects, and Jake, if you think about it, everything we do in this industry, whether it's upstream, midstream, downstream, or service, is a project. Yeah. And when you're able to look at all the projects you've ever done and the ones you did well and the ones you didn't do well and have all that data and, and use that data to help make better decisions, I mean, it's, it's going to be a game changer. Um, it is going to be interesting to watch because right now there's a shortage of skilled project managers in, in the oil and gas industry. Um, it is going to be interesting to watch to see if technology eventually helps entry-level project managers or maybe junior-level project managers do the job as good as the, the really experienced ones. Um, I think it's going to take a while to get there, um, but I can actually see that being a possibility, a very real possibility. 
Yeah, if you want to get ahead of the power curve, look into some certifications. They're definitely not long. I mean, they're definitely not short, I mean, uh, and they're definitely not cheap. Uh, I was just doing some research. Uh, Harvard has one. It's a data science certificate, four courses. Uh, I don't know if it's 10 grand each or 10 grand total, but it usually takes about a year and a half to do. But that would definitely put you ahead of the power curve for sure. Yeah, and it's also the other thing is be interesting to watch. Like, so... Uh, uh, who, what's who's Primavera? That's Oracle. So Oracle owns Primavera. Microsoft owns um, Project and Project Server. It's going to be interesting to see these tech companies, how they integrate new technologies that they're standing up, they're trying to commercialize into their existing project management tools. Um, I mean, it's uh, Jake, you're right. I can easily see the project management universe turn into nothing but a big data analytics play because really that's what the experience of people like Amy who are an experienced project manager it's the data in her head because she's done some of these projects she may not be consciously aware of it but that's exactly what it is so yeah good great question awesome question Great question from everyone today. Uh, tons of good stuff. Uh, if you have any more questions for our April first Friday Q and a please write in ask us a question and we'd love to answer that for you. Moving on we got a winner for this week's Red Wing bag. Who's the winner, Jake? Teresa Baumgartner. She is a researcher in drilling automation and big data analytics. We were just favorite. talking about that. I know. At University of Texas in Austin. Yeah, way to go, Teresa. Um, who's the guy that uh, reached out to me? What was his name? Colin. Is it Colin? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Teresa, be careful. Colin may be reaching out to you to see when you get your bag. <laughs> and if you would like to win your awesome bag, just like Colin Teresa did, is actually really simple. Um, you go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Throw your information in there. Uh, we pull one lucky winner a week. Uh, no purchase necessary. See official site for rules and details. And our recount for this week, a little less than normal, but still trending in the right direction. So we are up to for a total of 756 active rigs. That is awesome. Way to go. Um, Vince on deck uh, this week, Jake, Tuesday and Wednesday, I'll say we, but I think it's just going to be me and Paige. <laughs> Maybe it's just going to be me. We're going to be at the Process Safety and Oil and Gas Conference. Um, um, that's going to be a great conference. We are bringing the HSE podcast there. Uh, we have a whole bunch of events coming up that we're all going to. We have the, uh, I think the POGS conference, POGS conference, the following week, Tuesday 14th. And if you'd like your, a list of all the oil and gas events that's going on in one place, st- stuck in your email inbox once a month for free, um, we have a monthly newsletter that does exactly that. It's all and gas uh, events newsletter. Uh, there's a link Jake will throw in there. All you do is go sign up, and we don't spam you, and uh, we, we put that in your inbox uh, once a month. And we talked about the first Friday Q&A. Jake, what's going on with reviews? Got any new reviews? Uh, I think we got one. It was quite short. Let me see if I can pull it up. Yes, we have one, uh, which I believe this review is from Colin Beasley, who won the uh, Red Wing bag. <laughs> Colin, we're just talking about you all the time. Just based on the, on the username, I'm going to say it's Colin. I uh, said so these guys have done a great job explaining oil and gas to lay people. This has helped me understand some other facets of the industry I'm not involved in, as well as hone in on some things I do work in. I also won the Red Wing bag. Yep, so that was him. <laughs> <laughs> so... Giving us a review doesn't guarantee you that you win red win red win a Red Wing bag. We have nothing to do with that. Red Wing corporate pulls those names, but there's been a trend that we've noticed that people leave us reviews. Sometimes seem to win bags. So uh, leave us a review. It's a it, you're helping the show. You're helping me and Jake get in front of more people, which only helps everybody. It takes all of five minutes. I've had several people reach out to me and, and tell me that um, they know how to leave a review. So um, there's a link that uh, to a HubSpot article, Jake, that we can throw in there. It literally takes you step-by-step step how to leave a review in iTunes. But Jake and I would really appreciate it if you take the couple minutes to leave us a review. 
And other than that, I think we I don't think we talked about the LinkedIn group. So there's the Oil and Gas Global Network LinkedIn group. Join that. Uh, there's also the the new Facebook group, which is growing pretty steadily. Um, so join those. Jump in on the conversation. And Jake, we um so on the other podcast, Oil and Gas HS and E, uh, we did a ten minute. Uh, I don't even know if it's ten minutes. We did a Facebook Live video, and it went viral. It was crazy. I think I can't remember what the number is. I think over 11,000 people saw it. Um, so we're starting to do more and more of that Facebook Live stuff. We don't announce it ahead of time because that kind of ruins <laughs> the whole fun of having Facebook Live. But whenever Jake and I go do something, go do an interview or something, um, we'll also do some Facebook Live stuff. And the way you'll find out that is you have to subscribe you have to All and Gas Global Network, the Facebook page. And that's where we do all those Facebook Lives. Um, and that is about everything. Very last thing, if you like the show, uh, can you do me a favor and share it with your friends and family or whatever? We're out there trying to uh, beat the bushes and grow our audience. And then other than that, Jake, you ready to get out of here? Let's do it. All right, folks, do great work. Pay it forward. And we'll see you next time.